We're 10 months into the pandemic, and the daily press conferences from state and local leaders continue to broadcast increasingly grim infection and death rates. But it's not all doom and gloom. The holiday season is upon us, and a vaccine's on the horizon. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over some of the week's top headlines in the paper and online. The financial shrapnel continues to uh, rip around the capital region. We'll learn about new research that challenges what we thought we knew about the life of founding father Alexander Hamilton. Somebody who looked, you know, without any bias at the evidence and said, I'm not afraid to call him a slave owner. We'll revisit an almost 30-year-old cold case from Saratoga County. She is absolutely certain somebody knows something and she wants that person to come forward. And we'll get holiday shopping tips from the Times Union's very own Shoppertoonist. This is the time of year you really want to stock up on gift cards. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler to go over the top headlines this week, the week after Thanksgiving. Um, Some big news this week. Governor Cuomo uh, announced that New York would be receiving 170,000 COVID vaccines uh, when it is finally approved. Can you tell me more about that? It's good news. It's sort of the beginning. It's not It's not the end of the beginning, but perhaps, hopefully, it's the beginning of the end of the COVID-19 crisis. But of course, we still have a long way to go. According to CDC guidelines, the first people who are supposed to receive the vaccines, although states are free to interpret and set their own protocols, are people on the front line. So healthcare workers who are at special risk, those working in nursing homes who are at special risk as well. But those vaccines could go out to some of those individuals as as soon as uh, just a couple of weeks. The governor, of course, and leaders of other states have responded to what appears in polls from at least two months ago to be a certain amount of um, uh, dubiousness or distrust of the Trump administration's uh, approval of vaccines. Those states, and there are more than a half dozen of them, are going to they have said, pull together their own sort of dream team of healthcare experts to look at the FDA's approval process. And if it is determined to be sound and based on all existing evidence that appears to be the case, Dr. Anthony Fauci, among others, have said that the FDA's process appears to be very much on the up and up and one that people can trust. I predict you will see a flurry of elected officials uh, holding press conferences 
to be among the first to get vaccines um, like you've never seen before. Indeed. I wonder if this will be a real turning point for us here in New York. But along those lines, can you give us an update on kind of the COVID scene here in the capital region? What are our numbers like? And is there a fallout from Thanksgiving? Well, we're, we're still kind of waiting to see if there is a spike from people traveling or potentially getting together uh, against the recommendations of healthcare experts and many elected officials over the holiday. But of course, some people did. But the numbers continue to be very bad. Albany County was supposed to or could very well have gone into a yellow zone designation, which is sort of the lesser of the three uh, microcluster designations that the state has set, yellow, orange, and then, and then red, it would have gone in to yellow zone likely on Monday had it not been for two things. Number one, the state announced that it was going to be changing the metrics by which it put regions or even zip codes into microcluster color-coded designations. It's now going to include things like hospitalization capacity, as well as the number of healthcare workers that any that any given county, for example, can tap. But also, Albany County was revealed on the day before Thanksgiving, dipped uh, literally a hair below 3% positivity rate for, for coronavirus tests. That meant that its 10-day clock for positivity rates reset. But of course, we're now back, you know, starting on Thanksgiving, we're, we're now a week, we're talking, you know, Thursday at midday, we're almost a week into a new 10-day stretch of positivity, and it's looking very much like we are not going to make it. We're not going to have another sort of saving day like we had last week. So for Albany County, as for all the counties in the region, rates are up, and it's, um, it's very disturbing. Certainly. And we are following that very closely in the newsroom. You can read the latest updates on a daily, if not hourly basis at timesunion.com. Semi-related to the COVID situation, this week, nurses at Albany Medical Center went on strike. Can you tell us what happened with that? Yeah, the Nurses Union, which represents uh, about 2,000 at Albany Medical Center, which is, of course, the, you know, the largest healthcare provider in the capital region, one of the largest uh, employers in the region as well, went out on strike on Thursday morning. They described it as, as a one-day strike. They have safety concerns about the protocols that Albany Med is, has put in place during the coronavirus, but there are also long simmering um, labor concerns, just contract issues that the union has been you know, raising awareness about. The center hired 700 temporary nurses and did what they could to train them up. But there's no question that nurses at Albany Med, like healthcare workers really across the country, have been up against it. It was noted that 150 nurses uh, could not take part in the picketing outside Albany Med because they are on quarantine. Albany Med describes that as a problem that cropped up in the oncology ward. The nurses who went out on strike on Tuesday, Albany Med said, would not be uh, allowed to come back to work. They'll be on uh, what's known as delayed reinstatement until Friday morning. But it's also worth noting, Albany Med said that as of uh, on Tuesday, 538 nurses were scheduled to work that day. 
408 crossed the picket line. So it's something, unfortunately, it's a, it's a dispute that likely is going to continue to bubble. All right, on to a story that the Times Union has been covering for a while, the saga of the fallout from my payroll HR. Can you tell us what new developments popped up this week? Yes, this is, of course, the uh, the payroll company that was based in the capital region's northern suburbs, my payroll HR, that suddenly at the beginning of September 2019 collapsed, creating a national ripple of companies that um, were unable to pay their workers, of workers who saw their paychecks suddenly yanked back out of their bank account, causing great distress, obviously, for lots of workers, many of whom live very close to the bone. It was revealed in the weeks that followed that Michael Mann, who was the proprietor of my payroll HR, as well as lots of other companies, some of them with exceedingly shaky uh, business uh, identities, had perpetrated what federal prosecutors have described as a $100 million uh, fraud scheme. What's new this week is that Pioneer Bank, which is, of course, a local uh, entity that uh, has itself been sued in connection with its dealings with Michael Mann, sued by federal authorities, is itself suing for $34 million, an Albany-based accounting firm, Teal, Becker, and Shiramonte, claiming that the accounting firm misrepresented the financial status of man's companies in documents that the bank used to basically authorize um, significant loans and a line of credit for Michael Mann's companies. Michael Mann has pleaded guilty to a whole smorgasbord of, of felonies in connection with this, but the financial shrapnel continues to uh, rip around the capital region. All right. Well, you can read about that story and all of the headlines that we discussed during this segment on timesunion.com. Casey, thanks so much as always for joining me and we'll check back in with you next week. Jess, good talking to you. Founding father and now hit Broadway musical star Alexander Hamilton has long been hailed as a, quote, uncompromising abolitionist. Historians like Ron Chernow, who wrote biographies on the nation's first Secretary of the Treasury, argue Hamilton disavowed the practice of slavery. But a tour guide at the Schuyler State Historic Site in Albany recently unearthed compelling evidence that our $10 founding father without a father may indeed have been a buyer and seller of enslaved people. And that research sent shockwaves through the historian community and the Hamilton fan base across the country. Times Union columnist and New York State Writers Institute director Paul Grondahl took a deep dive into that research this week, and I asked him about it. I personally am as much of a Hamilton musical fan as the next guy, uh, particularly the narrative uh, and Ron Chernow's narrative that he was uh, an ardent abolitionist. However, um, as we know from your article, that might not have been true. So can you kind of expound on that? What is new here? So I think what is new here is uh, an overall opening up 
of everything that's known about the Schuylers and the Hamiltons. I mean, the Schuyler Mansion has been a state historic site for, I don't know, 100 years or more. And I've been writing about it for 30 plus years. And they're always a little bit touchy when you brought up slave owning, you know, which is well documented, well known, particularly with the Schuyler family, with the Van Rensselaer family, with all the wealthy uh, families in this area, primarily Dutch. They never really wanted to talk about it, but Heidi Hill, the manager there for 15 years, said this this intensive summer program at Yale in 2013 kind of gave her confidence and permission to talk about uncomfortable truths about these families and, and Hamilton and his past uh, as a slave owner and slave trader falls under that. Now they encourage young women like Jesse Sir Filippi um, and other young women who have been interpreters, which are essentially tour guides, you know, they say, hey, dig into what you can find and nothing is off limits anymore. And I think particularly now with Black Lives Matter and this reckoning on race, there's a lot of um, things coming out about families that was, was always sort of known, but never really talked about. It's not completely... Um, accepted you know Chernow's version and many other biographies cling to this abolitionist uh, Alexander Hamilton and I actually got an email after the article came out from a, a, a distant a fifth great grandson challenging Jesse Sir Philippi's you know point by point and, and you know family members still are not prepared to say that he owned and sold slaves and they have their own sort of background so I think I, I read her whole uh, report carefully. I read the objections from people. I think she's on firm ground. I think she's actually opening her eyes to things that were always kind of glossed over before. And she's young and she's not in the club. She's not a professional historian. She's not an eminent biographer. She's not, you know, so she's totally free to go wherever the evidence leads. And I think what she found is that, yes, he clearly did on slaves and he did, you know, serve as a middleman, uh, as a slave owner. There's different interpretations, like the family says, well, he wasn't really a slave trader. He just served as the banker when people bought and sold and traded slaves. Um, and, and Jesse lays out very, I think, convincing evidence, no, that he really was making these transactions and, and selling humans of African descent. Even if he was just, you know, the banker, you know, the books, the person who was keeping the books, I mean, does that, that doesn't really lessen the relationship that he had to slavery. I mean, he was kind of fomenting it, wasn't he? Right. But this, this statistic, this came out of some earlier stories I had done, again, after Heidi Hill came back from this Yale and they started digging into it. So 1790 census, 217 households in Albany County owned five or more slaves of African descent. There were 3,722 documented slaves in Albany County in 1790. Statewide, there were 21,193. Albany County was the highest county of owned documented slaves. You know, the Schuylers, the Van Rensselaers, the Hamilton descendants who, who wrote to me and pushed back said, you know, a lot of it was a factor of wealth. And Hamilton didn't have a lot of money. He couldn't really live the lifestyle that, that his in-laws had lived, the Schuylers in Albany, so he couldn't really afford to own slaves. I'm not sure that argument really holds up. But I think Jesse, you know, as a really first-time historian, she 
is an English major. She got an MFA in creative writing. She's more interested in, in her fiction work, but somebody who looked, you know, without any bias at the evidence and said, I'm not afraid to call him a slave owner. I think, I think she makes some really strong points. Sure. And beyond that, too, it's a tough pill to swallow for the, you know, legions of Hamill fans out there, right? Because exactly. Alexander Hamilton is, is, you know, he's a founding father, but he's kind of reached this new level of iconic status thanks to this, you know, to this musical. So, I mean, how did, how did we reconcile that as well? Yeah, and that's what, <clears throat> I mean, Jesse, you know, she's a little overwhelmed because it got a lot of attention, New York Times, Guardian, AP, other outlets, and then people started coming af- after her. This is not right. You can't attack Hamilton. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda got some pushback for his portrayal. Again, it's a work of imagination and, and creativity. It's not meant to be a fact-based biography. But once that play came out, the musical uh, in 2015, they doubled attendance at Schuyler Mansion and they had to add tours. But as Jesse said, you know, she gives dozens and dozens of tours and people started asking, especially young students and kids, like, did they own slaves? What about this? And, you know, they felt obligated to give truthful answers as much as they could find. And, and they, what they found in the record is that, yeah, they were, including Alexander Hamilton owned and sold humans as property. But the same token, Jesse is is a huge Hamilton fan. I mean, she can sing all the songs as, as I was. I, I took my daughter to see the show. We saw it right when it moved to Broadway. We saw it when it came through town here on Proctor's. I love that show too. Um, but again, a, a Broadway musical is something different than a biography or a work of history. Sure. Um, and I think... Part of the point of, of both Jesse and, and Heidi Hill, the manager at Skylar Mansion, is that, you know, we should talk about these characters and their full, you know, their full personality, good, bad, and, and otherwise. If it is accurate that they were owners and sellers of, of human beings, then that should be part of their history and their legacy as well. We shouldn't, you know, ignore or block off uh, uncomfortable truths about them. And sure. even Ron Chernow said that in his interview with the New York Times that uh, he welcomes, you know, this broader kind of new interpretation. She definitely is in direct conflict with him. She said, no, you got it wrong. Here's the evidence. And he didn't really like that. I could tell, you know, I mean, he's, he's revered and she's this young upstart that isn't even trained as a historian. But again, that's what I liked about it, that she it was kind of a David and Goliath. She was not afraid to tread on this sacred, you know, sacrosanct ground and say, no, I'm looking at all this. And he was a slave owner. Sure. Now, her research obviously didn't, her paper didn't get all, you know, these responses from these storied historian folks. I mean, they, it it did get some praise from, from well-known historians as well. Yeah, it did. Annette Gordon-Reed, who uh, wrote a great book about uh, Sally Hemings and, and uh, Thomas Jefferson and is at Harvard and has won the Pulitzer Prize. She she praised it. And a, a couple other uh, women historians said, you know, good work, Jesse. And Jesse said that was that was really kind of uh, bucked up her spirits. Um, but there were a lot of people uh, that didn't want to hear this about Hamilton, uh, who had, again, forever been called this abolitionist founding father and uh, might have been an inaccurate portrayal of, of his actual story. And, and I really think Jesse did a service for somebody who was really not a professional in the field, 
But again, she's around it all the time. She's giving tours and talking about it and getting questions. And she dug into the cash books. You know, that, that was kind of, to me, the defining evidence. You know, he was, a, he was an accountant, essentially. He was the, the secretary of the treasury. He, he loved numbers and he kept track of everything. What he spent, what came in. And when you look at it, you know, he's got clear numbers down for, for people. They were often euphemistically called servants and things. And, and, but I think Jesse makes a compelling case that he may have called them servants. He might have called them workers. But when you have a number beside them and, you know, they were, they were then traded, sold to another person with a, with a dollar value on them, they were slaves. What's next for her? Is she, I know you mentioned that she, as well as uh, the Schuyler Mansion, were really interested in highlighting the stories of the people who were enslaved, you know, in and around the property. Is that, is that what's next? Yeah, she wants to tell the stories of the enslaved people for whom history has very little to say, often never, not even a name with them, you know, buried in unmarked graves. She's got some information on a few of like the cook, the coachman, and she wants to try to develop that. I did a story uh, years ago, probably 10 years ago, <clears throat> they were doing a, a dig in Manans. So there's a place called Schuyler Flats, which was like their farm on the outskirts of Albany and Manans. And they, they were digging for an expansion of the FedEx facility there and they came across these remains. They turned out to be unmarked, unnamed African remains. They were slaves, children, women, men, and they carefully exhumed them all. Then they had the state museum archaeologists study them, find out what they could, you know, hard lives. They had, you know, issues with bones and things like that where they had manual hard lives. And then what was beautiful is they got somebody to uh, create these coffins and they had this beautiful kind of African ceremony to reinter them in St. Agnes Cemetery. They provided a space free of charge. And I, I covered that and it was very moving. These were unknown, unnamed people who worked for the Schuylers who had been buried there for hundreds of years and, and were dug up during this construction. It's going to be very hard to tell those stories because it was almost like they didn't exist. She uses the term erased from history, which is very moving. Ladies and gentlemen. After the break, we'll revisit a local cold case from 1993. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. A decades-old cold case from Saratoga County is getting renewed attention this week. The unsolved murder of Betty Conley in Charlton, New York, has remained an utter mystery for 27 years to law enforcement, to the community, and to her family. Her daughter Linda is still looking for answers. Reporter Wendy Liberatore wrote about the case this week. It's a really small town, and, and there's lots of rumors, and I know someone knows something. This happened a long time ago. A woman was murdered. What was the, What's the story? Well, on July 8th, 1993, Betty Connolly 
went to her job at the Extra Mart in Harmony Corners out on Route 67 near Charlton, near the center of Charlton, but it's out on a lonely stretch. There's just a firehouse and this Extra Mart where she worked at. Apparently at around 2 o'clock in the morning, someone came in, nobody knows who, shot her in the back of the head one time with a pistol, 9 millimeter, took $100, and they don't know who did it. No, there weren't any security cameras or anything that could have identified the killer? They had one camera in there that would only take photos. It wasn't video surveillance, and it was knocked down off the wall uh, when police got there and did not capture anything. Linda Connolly, the woman's daughter, said she believes the camera was actually broken anyway, but it was certainly broken when the police got there that morning. What I'm basically trying to do is uh, sort of shine a spotlight back on it, you know, because a lot of people have, um, you know, forgotten about it, or a lot of people I know also just assumed it got solved. And Linda Conley, she is the daughter, um, yeah. and you said the family's distraught. Why now is this kind of being reinvestigated? Well, it's interesting. She is a wedding photographer, and we're in the midst of the pandemic, and all of her weddings have been canceled. So she said she's going to put her full attention now on helping her mother's murder be solved. So she was pestering the um, Saratoga County sheriffs who are the lead investigators on the case. And um, they have agreed to pour some more resources into it. She also had a rally over the summer where she printed signs up. So you might see signs around the Capitol District, you know, who killed Betty Conley with a phone number. Anyway, the police have resubmitted all the evidence that they do have to the crime labs, hoping that there might be some kind of update in uh, forensics technology because it was 1993. But they really haven't gotten a whole lot. They have gotten some tips, but these are tips that they already had. It's a lot of repetitive information. Without a doubt, someone knows something. And um, even if the person's dead, like, just give my father some peace. Yes, you know? right. So, sure, that was a very powerful line in your story. Yeah. I mean, that was your headline, somebody knows something or someone yeah. knows something. Right. And she also... Um, you know, mentioned to me too, which is, uh, the police also said this, this happened. It was, there was a white car there with like a, uh, primer spray primer on one of its doors. And there was a six foot tall man who was seen there at about that time. But that's mm-hmm. basically, they have that from an eyewitness. That's basically all they have. And it was two in the morning as well, so it's not like it was, you know, right. noon when everybody was out and about. That's correct. And, uh, of course, initially, Bruce Connolly, her husband, was considered a person of interest because he had a 9 millimeter pistol. But he was eliminated when they saw that uh, the ballistics didn't match. How did you come upon this cold case? Had you heard of it before? I do remember when it happened. 
you know, 27 years ago, I remember it because I was stunned that someone would do this for $100. But now because Linda Conley's pushing so hard, she is reaching out to all the press begging us to do stories on it. And I said, of course, because I remembered the case. And for some reason, I thought it was solved. And she said, a lot of people thought it was solved. Tell me about Charlton. That's a small town, right? It's a very small town. There's not a lot of people there. It's mostly rural. It's a lot of farms. They have a little town center, very small. It doesn't have big box stores or anything like that. There's not a lot of people that live there. So there wasn't people out and about. Again, it was two o'clock in the morning to, to see what happened. And again, the store is in a deserted area of Charlton. Sure, sure. Conceivably, could it have been somebody passing through town? Is that is that a place at a at a kind of a nexus where people might be passing through as opposed to somebody who was local who did it? Not really. It's that rural out there. Although initially they were looking for a car from Missouri and uh, because the same eyewitness that saw the white car parked at the extra mart said they saw a um, Missouri car pass through. Well, the police did track down the Missouri car, and he was there visiting his girlfriend, who happened to live in the area. But that is definitely not a roadway where people would drive unless they're specifically going somewhere in Charlton. Hmm. What an intriguing cold case. Yes. Now, do you think do you think it stands a chance of being solved with kind of modern technology, maybe something like genetic genealogy or, you know, advanced forensics? I don't think that will help. I think Linda's right. Somebody's going to have to speak up and say they know something. I mean, the police and Linda have said, you know, there's certain people this points to but they have nothing on them. And that's why they're not even considered a person of interest. These are people who were addicts at the time, you know, that everybody knew because, again, it's a small town, would steal for drugs, but they have no evidence on anybody. So it's kind of just languishing. Wow, a true cold case, huh? Yes, yes. Whoever did it probably had a wife or you know, had parents or had siblings or has a kid and one of those people know or a girlfriend or a mother of their child or something. So yep. without a doubt, someone knows something. Linda's only hope is if somebody steps forward and the police confirm that as well. Have you done your holiday shopping yet? If you're like me, and you're not quite done, or haven't even started, you're not alone. But you're also in luck, because I talked to Times Union's shoppertoonist Shannon Froma this week for some tips, tricks, and deals for this most unusual gift-giving season. Well, it's finally December. It's the holiday season, albeit in a kind of strange year. Um, that's an understatement. Let's talk shopping. We still got to do our holiday shopping. Let's start with some December buys. What are the what's the good stuff? What what should we look out for? You know, some of the best December buys um, include toys. You know, the 
conventional wisdom is you should wait until later December to get those toys because um, retailers are going to start wanting to wipe out the inventory on their shelves in the days leading up. So, you know, I'd say within the next two weeks, you can start to see some of the best deals. This is also a good month to stock up on wine and champagne. You know, with New Year's Eve approaching, most of us will probably be hunkered down, um, but we still might want some of that bubbly and uh, those liquor stores are going to do what they can to get us in and give us great deals. You know, and of course, you know, as we approach the holiday, we'll start to see some big savings on Christmas decor, gift wrap, holiday cards, and more. The best deals will, of course, be after Christmas, um, but some of the most significant sales of the holiday season will still arrive before Santa hits the sack. Um, so keep your eye out for those. If you're in the market for a new car, you know, it sounds kind of crazy right now, but now is the time to buy because dealerships are clearing out their 2020 inventory. This is the time of year you really want to stock up on gift cards. You know, they are consistently the most popular gift to give and receive, according to the National Retail Federation. And um, many stores and restaurants are offering bonus cards and special incentives. You know, this weekend, Target is offering 10% off all store gift cards. Um, chain restaurants like Applebee's and Outback Steakhouse will give you a bonus gift card valued at $10 for every $50 in gift cards you spend. It's important to know that like many locally owned restaurants are also offering a little something extra, you know, and buying local is a great way to keep money in our community and support businesses that continue to struggle through this pandemic. Um, for sure. You know, for a limited time, DZ Restaurants is offering a $25 holiday bonus card for every $50 in gift cards purchased. The cards are valid at the parent company's three Saratoga Springs restaurants, Forno Bistro, Boca Bistro, and Chianti. Um, Tara Kitchen, which is located in Troy's Connected to and Gilderland, is offering $20 bonus for every $100 spent. And El Local Mexican Cafe in Albany, they're giving you $5 bonus cards for every $25 in gift cards purchased. And, you know, almost... Wow, all- I'm hungry now. <laughs> and the cool thing is, you know, you don't have to necessarily go to these restaurants to pick these up. A lot of the restaurants, including these small, smaller ones, they offer the option to buy gift cards online for added convenience, and then they'll just email you a code. Wow, that's pretty convenient. I mean, do you think, obviously, with the pandemic raging and people hopefully staying home, that, you know, we're going to see some kind of a trend where, you know, gift card purchases, like, reach all-time highs? I I think it's entirely possible because they are a simple way to, you know, gift those you love something special, and you don't have to leave the house, and they don't have to necessarily leave the house. You know, a lot of these restaurant gift cards can be used to purchase um, to-go orders, you know. Sure. And then there's always those DoorDash gift cards, which are a really popular option this year, too, because, I mean, on my list, that's what everyone's kind of asking for, because there's some flexibility there. There's flexibility to use it wherever you want, but you can still support those local restaurants, go to chains if you prefer, and, um, and stay safe. Yes, stay safe on top of all of the other things that are going on this season. Let's move on to online shopping because that's kind of a good segue. You know, people are sitting at home, they open up their laptop, maybe they go to Amazon, maybe they go to a local purveyor. What What's the scene like? Um, you know, online shopping is obviously bigger than ever. I mean, we had the biggest Cyber Monday in history. Wow. You know, people are you know, they're predominantly shopping online. You know, there are some suggestions I have if you want to save a little bit extra money. I always shop through a cashback site um, like Rakuten.com or RetailMeNot.com. You know, these shopping portals portals let you earn a percentage 
um, cash back on the money you spend. Um, so while you're going to shop anyway, you might as well get a little something in return. Try to stick with credit cards that help you earn hefty rewards like cash back, bonus points, travel perks, you know, that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. many of these stores will price match, even if you're not in the store physically. A lot of online stores are price matching this season. So, you know, if you see a better deal, try to reach out. Most of the time you have to call an 800 number. Another great way to save, it's kind of along the lines of those cashback apps, is um, download a browser extension. You know, a lot of sites like Honey, Rakuten, Deal Finder, Capital One, they all have browser extensions you can load right onto your PC. And then as you're shopping, the discounts, the coupons, the cashback will pop up automatically. So it really streamlines the process. Yeah, definitely. So there's nothing like just having a little honey gold pop up or something like that while you're doing your online shopping. With online shopping, obviously, you know, if you're getting gift cards, you don't have to worry about shipping and all of that. But, you know, if you're getting, you know, your friends and loved ones actual physical gifts that you're sending to their house, you have to deal with shipping deadlines. What's the scene there? What's the deal? What do you have to watch out for with shipping deadlines? Well, that's just it. You can get all the best deals in the world, but if your packages don't arrive on time, um, what good is it? Um, and the clock is ticking. You know, the continued avalanche of online orders is putting a lot of pressure on these already burdened carriers, and that's leading to some increased package rates. You know, you don't want to spend more than you should have to, and really lengthy delivery times. So, you know, according to the U.S. Postal Service, UPS, and FedEx, you know, packages shipped by ground should and must be mailed by December 15th to guarantee mm-hmm. arrival before Christmas Day. You know, and if you're shopping Amazon, the deadline for standard shipping is December 18th. If you're a Prime member, you want to be sure to order those gifts by December 21st to guarantee that two-day shipping when available. You know, and if you're going to stores like Target, Walmart, or Best Buy to take advantage of free shipping, um, you'll need to order by December 17th. So that's that's quite a few days before the holiday. It's important to remember that, you know, that click and collect, you know, buying online and picking up curbside is really still a great option. And, you know, it's convenient, it's safe, and almost all, all cases it's free. And, you know, an increasing number of small businesses, in addition to those big box retailers, are offering the service. Um, so, you know, and I really think it's going to it's gonna stick. This you know, curbside pickup is going to be here for the long haul, even post-pandemic. And it's it's a great option for people. Yeah, that was going to be my next question for you is, do you think that living through a holiday season in a pandemic is going to, you know, have effects on the future of, of holiday shopping and shopping in general? Well, I really do. I, I'm hopeful that, you know, in the future, we stores will remain closed on Thanksgiving. I think they realized, you know, people are still going to shop you know, in the days and weeks leading up and the days and weeks following, there will always be that strong push for online sales. These companies are really working on their supply chains now and their delivery models. So I I think things are definitely going to change for the better in more convenient ways as we go forward. Well, that is kind of a, a good silver lining. One last question for you. Have you finished your holiday shopping? I have not. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> almost entirely done. I just have, um, actually, I usually save the gift card purchases for last. So I've got to um, just really purchase those right now. And then those little bit of stocking stuffers and, you know, things like Christmas pajamas. But for the most part, I'm done. I'm feeling pretty good about it. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for going through all of this. This is actually, I've learned a lot in just talking to you in the last nine minutes. <laughs> awesome. That sounds great. Thank you for having me. 
That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. 